Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Pamela Redman's funny, perceptive rom-com called Younger is a current popular TV series billed as the next Sex in the City, and now she's back with a comical and poignant sequel called, you've guessed it, Older. What happens when a woman lies about her age to get a job? And then where is she left when the charade has to come to an end? Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and Pamela talks about the ageism that both men and women face in the workplace these days, feeling the fear and doing it anyway, and her dream of turning younger into a Broadway musical. But before we get to Pamela, just a reminder, the show notes for this episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. You'll find a full transcript of our chat, plus links to Pamela's books and website. You'll meet us there, or you can join us on our Binge Reading Facebook page. Please leave us your suggestions and comments. We love to hear from you, and we always will try and get back to you. But now, here's Pamela. Hello there, Pamela, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Jenny. Great to be here. The beginning at the beginning, we always just start with this point. People love to know the answer to it. Was there a once upon a time moment when you decided, I want to write fiction? Now, I'm aware that you'd written quite a lot of nonfiction, but when did the fiction light bulb switch on and was there a catalyst for it? I remember wanting to write fiction as early as high school, but I was it was daunting to figure out how to do that and earn a living. And so even though I took fiction writing classes in college and when I first moved to New York, which was in the 70s, I worked as a waitress and wrote short stories at night and, (laughs) uh, you know, tried that for a couple of years, uh, which seems like an embarrassingly long time now to take figuring out that that was not going to be a way to earn a living. And then, you know, I got married and had kids and had a career as a magazine journalist and started writing nonfiction books. And through all that, the desire to write fiction grew, but, you know, I was bedeviled how to actually make it a reality. So it wasn't really until my youngest child started school and I had a little bit of time and a little bit of, you know, freedom in terms of my mind (laughs) that I took a fiction writing class and started really trying in earnest to write a novel. It's funny because the, she was a girl then, now she's a woman who was my babysitter at that time, is now the age that I was when I started. And her children are the, you know, 46, I think. Her children are the same age that my children were, and she's trying to write. And it's, you know, it's challenging. Yeah, it is quite a common unfolding for women who have children and families. And and even, I mean, I didn't have children of my own. I had stepchildren. But 
you get very consumed with just family life in those middle years, the 20s and 30s, don't you? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it just, uh, and listen, you have to. It's not really, you don't really have the choice like, oh, I'll work on my career now and deal with children when I'm in my 50s or whatever, or (laughs) 40s. You know, you sort of, if that's something you want, you kind of have to get it together and do it. And then it's sitting in the middle of your life which is great. You know, you've chosen that, you want it, it's wonderful. But if you have to earn a living and you have children, that's, you know, something's got to go. And the sitting and noodling over a novel is, is that thing, I think, for most people. Sure. Now, you had a very successful career as a magazine journalist, and that can also be a trap. Your own mm. success can be a trap. So, But now you are a New York Times bestselling author of more than 20 fiction and nonfiction books. But we wanted to focus on the two most recent ones, which have a lovely story to them. They're delightfully connected. Younger, which became a popular TV series of the same name, and Older, which you've just published this year. And I think listeners would almost immediately be able to see the relevance to what you've already said to us about your own life. But tell us how Younger came to be. Yeah, I think as I get older myself, I realize how much Younger was wish fulfillment for me at that time. I, you know, the idea came about because of reading an article about extreme plastic surgery and how, you know, you could go to the jungle in Uruguay and emerge looking like a totally different and presumably younger person. And I thought, you know, what would I do if I had that opportunity? And I thought I would go back to my 20s and, you know, start my novel writing career much sooner. So in a way, the the theme and the story of Younger kind of came out of my own wish to go back. And of course, the heroine Liza is trying to return to work in her mid-40s. Nobody wants to hire her. And so she finally, in desperation, pretends to be in her 20s and gets an entry-level job and a young lover and a whole new fake life that's wonderful, except it's not real. So it's kind of a fairy tale for middle-aged women, I think. You know, if you could do it over again, what would you do? Yeah, and that's a great question. There's a lot of delightful comedy in the way that the two generations interact. It takes the boyfriend quite a while to to realise quite what the full story is. And there's some delightful generational interaction going on there. That became a very popular TV series, as we've said, but it was quite a few years after you'd first published, I believe, wasn't it? Yes, the TV series debuted in 2015, and the book was originally published in 2005. So that was 10 whole years. It had been optioned a lot, never got made until Darren Starr, who made Sex and the City, came along and turned it into a really wonderful TV show. And then, of course, the show went beyond the original book and brought in new characters and Liza's pretenses exposed. And for a long time, it was difficult for me to see how you could do a sequel because the story was still so vibrant and so ongoing on television, as it still is. There's, they're shooting right now the final season. So, and I don't know what the story is going to be. So. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so tell me, in your research in those years, it is now obviously nearly 20 years ago. Yeah. It's amazing to think, isn't it? I know. It? But 
what were the generational differences that struck you that became your points of conflict or, or fun mm. in, in those years? Well, I think at that time, so in 2005, my daughter was 23. So she was, and she's the oldest of three children. So, you know, being with her and being around her friends was an education in what it was like to be 40-something hanging out with, or not hanging out with, but at least being in the same atmosphere. And I was writing for a lot of women's magazines, and my editors, for the most part, were much younger. So, you know, things like, you know, obvious things like slang or language, you know, musical references, you know, television references, all those things are awkward and funny. But I I think the famous scene uh, in the book that made it onto television was when Liza gets invited to go to an exercise class with her younger colleagues and they're in the locker room. And Liza, of course, hasn't gotten the memo on waxing. And <laughs> and one of the characters says, it looks like my mother's. <laughs> so, you know, things like that, that I think, you know, women who are older, once you get out of that whole age group and that whole social world, you don't get the memo. You don't find out, you know, what happens on dates and what people expect sexually and, you know, how uh, revealing they are about their lives, their thoughts, their relationships. And so that's a big adjustment. Yeah, yeah. Now, older, you revisit what happens in younger. And there must be a certain autobiographical aspect to that because it's really funny. I mean, you you have a story about an older woman who's written something like Younger <laughs> and is now doing the follow-up. So tell us about that. What was the genesis for that, really? The genesis for that was that I had written another book that I didn't sell, and I realized that there was an element in that book, which was the character having her life adapted as a TV show, that really belonged in a sequel to Younger. And I suddenly, that realization kind of gave me this whole idea for Liza, who's a novelist at the end of Younger, uh, the book, you know, of course she would write the book about her time pretending to be a millennial. And of course someone, Hilary Duff, aka Kelsey, would want to make that book into a television show. Of course, it is a successful television show. So that whole idea of the show within the book, within the show, really just, it felt like a very adventurous way to write a sequel that, you know, harkened back to the original and the characters that had become so beloved from the show while taking the story to a new and kind of uh, adventurous level for me as a writer. Yeah. So in your, in your sequel, she's decided that she's going to totally own up to her age. She's going to move into the real life that's there for her. And she's challenged in the things that have to occur for that to happen. Has there been any interest in turning this one into an actual TV series as well? Well, um, Darren Starr and Viacom actually own the rights to this. Oh, do they? They do. So when they bought Younger, it included the film and television rights to turn, you know, to the characters and the situation. So I would love, I think it would be an amazing television movie, you know, or limited series. I'm not sure I see it as a series series, but uh, I have a fantasy about them, you know, as long as they're shooting the last season, why not 
stay for an extra few weeks and and shoot a little movie. So that's, you know, that's a fantasy of mine. Last weekend, I actually spent the weekend working on a proposal to turn Younger into a Broadway musical. So that's something that I own the rights to and that I think would be such a natural way to take it in a different direction from the television show, from the book. And, you know, really that Cinderella story on stage and, of course, Sutton Foster, who stars in the show, is a musical theater star on Broadway. So what a great idea. And there'd be wonderful music in it, too. I know. Now, I've actually been taking a class in book writing for musical theater and in lyric writing, which I have never, ever done before. And my classmates are literally a third of my age, and they all are theater nuts, and they're wonderful composers and lyricists. And I'm like, I see a horsey and a ducky. You know, I just don't know anything. So I wrote my first song a few weeks ago and the teacher really liked it. And I really, I haven't felt so good about anything in, in a long, long time. <laughs> uh, That's wonderful. Yeah. So tell me just a little technical aside, how did you write it? Do you have a keyboard there or a guitar or? No, I just wrote the lyrics. So um, oh, they're just, apparently okay. one yeah. can do this at least. <laughs> you know, you write the lyrics and then uh, they're actually, we're going to give the lyrics to the composing class and have the composers put the music to it. Although some of my classmates do both and, uh, <laughs> but not me. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. I just think it, I, I love it. Yeah. You, you are an expert on the field of aging gracefully because you wrote a couple of nonfiction books on that topic. But um, just sort of looking at older again, what kind of advice would you give to, say, a woman in her late 40s or early 50s who was wanting to just really inhabit her life in a, in a more wholehearted way? What would you say to her? Yeah, you know, in some ways, younger is a cheat because Liza deals with ageism by pretending, by passing as someone young. So, you know, it, it is like the old story, which we've been reading more about lately, of Black people, you know, 100 years ago who dealt with racism by passing as white. And the sacrifices, you know, in terms of their soul um, that they had to make in order to get that benefit. I think lies is up against the same thing. You know, as much as it's fun and a fairy tale, you know, and a fantasy I think in the end, that's it's not a solution. It's not a solution to ageism in society, and it's not a solution to restarting your career in life. Because in older, you know, Liza, she doesn't really have any choice. She doesn't want to fake it anymore, but she couldn't, you know. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't have. Certainly, even at 44, I couldn't have. And at 50, I definitely couldn't have. So in that case, there will be ageism. It is you know, it is there, whether it's in your face or not. You just have to accept that and figure out how to be tough around it. And that is not easy. I think that's more daunting than maybe the professional piece or making the contacts or whatever, just going back into the workforce, realizing that nobody wants you there. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. If you were already there, if you were already, I mean, there's so many professional people, men and women, who are 50 or 55 or 60, who are cast aside and marginalized and demoted 
because of their age. So somebody who's been out of things for 10 or 20 years and is trying to get back in, that is really tough. I think my real advice would be start a business, be the captain of your own ship. And yeah, not easy either, yeah. but you know, I would rather do that than than, you know, I, I told a friend today, it's like you're still you're still auditioning for the basketball team and you need to like invent your own sport and be the captain of your own team because you're not gonna get on the team. <laughs> it's not happening. Yeah. It's, it's a bleak thing to have to acknowledge, but certainly in some industries, like and I think journalism is one of them, and I sort of have a bit of a sympathy with it as well because, you know, if somebody's been an editor of a magazine for 20 years, mm-hmm. it's so very hard to retain freshness over that time. Mm-hmm. And, and you can imagine the employers thinking, look, anybody, just fresh blood would be better than the same old, same old. So is there a way that you can refresh yourself in your head. I mean, a lot of it is within your own mind, isn't it? The the battle you're fighting. Yes. I think one of the supposed benefits of age is that you feel more secure and you feel more comfortable with how you do things, with knowing how to do things and doing them that way. And part of starting new or, or, or being fresher is not knowing as much. You know, you have to let go of those patterns and let go of you know, your security, which is, you know, very uncomfortable. So I do love taking classes. I think that's a great way to, you know, a a way with relatively low stakes to put yourself in a position to practice basically being ignorant. You know, you you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because being fresh and being new and bringing a new viewpoint is going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, so it is that that little cliche about doing something that frightens you or not being afraid of failure, that kind of approach. Yeah, I think so because it's it's because if you're taking more risks, if you're doing something new and you're trying to do something different, that means by definition you're taking more risks and risk is frightening and we tend to pull away from it especially as we get older and we feel like we have an alternative. Hey, I can do this nice, comfy thing that I know how to do, that I know I'm good at. And I feel like, you know, I listen, I, my life is just like everybody else's. I have the same challenges as a woman in my 60s in LA. I got divorced after 33 years. I moved here, you know, on my own. I had been here for a couple of days total. I didn't know anybody or... So it, and it was really hard. I mean, I would ask people, you know, to go for coffee and people would just be like, no, I I have enough friends. No, thanks. (laughs) You know, I, I just got, I tried to start writing for the television industry and TV definitely, you know, they think 40 is elderly. So they were, nobody was scooting over for me, no matter what kind of works I had to my credit, you know, no matter how many books or how much experience, it still totally sucks. (laughs) But I've learned a lot about, you know, how to brush that off. You know, Taylor Swift, I love Taylor Swift, brush it off. So one of those nonfiction books that I mentioned was called 30 Things Every Woman Should Have and Should Know by the Time She's 30. And it was advice that was also based on 
lots of famous women giving their advice. It was through Glamour magazine. Can you tell us what do you think is the most important one of those bits of advice that those famous women gave? Was it something that still stands stands out and is relevant today? Oh, you know, there was something in there about, you know, not taking it personally, not taking rejection personally, which I think, you know, especially for women is really difficult, very difficult for me. But the more you can do that and the more you can keep going anyway, I think is is probably a really good piece of advice. It's funny because that what became that book started as a column in Glamour magazine. And Glam and it became it became known as Maya Angelou's best poem ever. Because it my name fell off it, it became this viral email that women sent to each other. And I was bedeviled, you know, how will I get my credit back for this? And I finally wrote a piece for Huffington Post called, I wrote Maya Angelou's best poem ever. (laughs) So whenever anybody Googles Maya Angelou's best poem ever, they come to, they get my piece about how it's not really her best poem ever. It's really written by me. And in kind of the ultimate betrayal, I think Glamour Magazine had it on their site for years with my name on it, with the story. My name's on the book, obviously. And just recently, they took my name off it. And it says, by Glamour. So, you know, Glamour, I wrote to you. I said, how dare you do this to me? Nobody responded. So. And did you ever get any money out of it? Well, not really. I mean. Well, you got paid to do the initial story, I suppose, but yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So how did you land that job at Glamour magazine? Well, I was an editor at Glamour in the 80s. So I was a fashion editor who got my job through, you know, one of those weird New York, somebody knew somebody connections. And then I became fashion features editor and I left to write my first name book in 86 and at and then I got a contract to write articles and eventually this column, which was called The Glamour List, that I wrote for many, many years. Great. Yeah. Look, you've had a fascinating life, but moving perhaps away from that to talking a little bit more about your taste in books, because we're into the joys of binge reading here. What do you like to read and what have you, has it changed over the years? I think it changes over the months, you know. I know I remember when my kids were little, I loved to read mysteries because I didn't have the bandwidth to read anything more subtle. Lately, I've again, thanks to my wonderful new Zoom life, I've been able to reconnect with a group of writer friends in New York. We read books in the context of our own and talk about them in the context of our writing which is so interesting. They're all novelists. And so, you know, it's a much kind of more ambitious literary reading than I've done since my 20s. But for instance, we read all of Ian Forster and we read, now we're reading all of Alice McDermott. These are people who I read and loved in my 20s. And it's so great to be rediscovering them now. And I've been very inspired with my own writing to be more ambitious and experimental and, you know, soulful maybe. Great now but this is binge reading so what do you like to binge read or do you have no time for binge reading these days? I think I'm more of a binge writer. I really am. I think I might be like getting getting that disease like graphomania or whatever where you just like write 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 write. I think I I probably write a lot more than I read and I don't have much time to read anything that's not part of my 
group. So, oh, yeah. So what do you write in your binge writing? <laughs> well, I've been working on a new novel and I've been, I wrote a new TV pilot. I spent the whole weekend actually writing a one page proposal for Younger, the Broadway musical. It took me like 25 hours maybe to write that one page. So yeah. I just, I'm a writer who loves the process of writing. And I think, you know, some people say I, I want to have written, but that's not me. I, I don't know. It would be disingenuous for me to say I would be happy if nothing ever got published. But if it didn't, I would still write. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So what do you think is the best and the worst advice that people give to starting out writers this, these days, no matter what age they might be as a beginner writer? Mm, that's a great question. I would say one of the worst <laughs> piece of advice to my mind and the way I write is to, you know, just sit down and start writing and, you know, let the page speak to you. I tried to do that for literally decades and it's it doesn't work. It's just a novel is a too big and complicated a piece of work to approach just that way. So so that's the worst. The best might be my best advice changes a lot depending on you know, if I'm taking a class or I'm reading a book, but I've been reading this book called The 90-Day Novel. And he has this amazing, you know, process where you write a novel in 90 days. And the first 30 days of the process is devoted to doing exercises that, you know, force you to think about your characters and story in really innovative ways. My my group of novelists, we're reading that and talking about it. We love it. You know, and these are people who've written probably 50 books among them. So it looks like a kind of semi-cheesy little, you know, how to get rich quick book, but it's awesome. Oh, that's great. Because I was going to say, when you said the worst advice was just start writing, you you probably aren't a total plotter, though. You probably do like to leave some space in the middle there. So how, how do you approach it in terms of those two ends of the spectrum they talk about, the plotter and the pantser? <laughs> the plotter and the pantser? Yeah. Have you heard that phrase? No, I love it. No. <laughs> <laughs> It's probably more romance writers that talk that way. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. Well, I took a class back in 2000 during this time when I was really starting to write novels with the mystery writer Elizabeth George, who wrote the Detective Lindley novel. Mm, yeah. I was yeah. a huge fan of hers. And uh, she has a process and a book about it that I really took to heart and and really informed me. I'm definitely a plotter, you know, but it doesn't start with a plot. It starts with the characters and creating the characters. And the 90-day novel does this too. And just really thinking in a very free-flowing creative way about who your characters are and then your settings and then your themes and, you know, what you're really, I know there's a question in an exercise in 90-day novel, which is like, what is your book about? I mean, that question is a very deep question. I wrote five hours one day about that, you know, just really trying to find out for myself, what is this really about? You know, it's like, yeah, it's about this woman who has a business and she wants to leave it to her son, but it's, it's really about, you know, feeling like you're still an effective person in the world as you get older. It's really about 
feeling like you have to do what you want before the clock runs out. But, you know, what do you really want? I mean, those are big, exciting questions to me. So, and those are the kind of questions I think if you think about those kind of questions before you start writing, will help you create a much richer book. It sounds like a great book. Is that one that's coming? It's out. It's out now, oh. yes. And, and apparently quite famous, although I never heard it before. But here's another example of an exercise. Write down every fear you have about writing the book that you're thinking about writing, and then give those fears to your character. It's, I mean, it sounds very simple, but I did that and really try to be honest. You know, I'm afraid people won't think I'm any good. You know, whatever comes up for you, I'm afraid people will think I'm just doing the same old thing. And you realize how much those, how resonant those fears are for you as an, or any kind of artist or any level of artist and how getting in touch with that can not only help you deal with them, but can help you enrich your character. Yeah, that's great. So I was actually referring to the book that you were talking about. Oh. <laughs> Is that one you've actually published yet? No, oh, no, 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 oh, I went, I went way far on that. No, I haven't published that yet. And in fact, I wrote about 100 pages of it and my editor looked at it and said, you know, I don't think this is your next book. I think this is the book after your next book. I think you need a bridge between um, older and this book, which is very big and sweeping. So I have a new idea now that she loves that I'm at the very beginning of developing, you know, thinking I it kind of has a high concept idea behind it like Younger did, but it's like, okay, who are these characters? And what is this book really about? So I'm still at, I'm at that stage. That's great because that really, we are starting to run out of time together, but that really brings us to that question of what is next for Pamela the writer? <laughs> You've got so much on, but tell us what you're hoping to achieve in the next 12 months. Oh, gee. You know, haven't all our plans been upended? You know, I am, besides being a plotter, I'm a big planner, and I always have a word of the year, you know, And this year I was kind of um, having trouble coming up with my word. It was so interesting. I thought strong, no, that's not really it. I don't know. I I just, I couldn't come up with the word. And then just recently I thought of my word and my word is big. And so everything, the, the idea behind this is that everything you do or every decision you make should relate back to that word. So I feel like I want to be bolder and more ambitious now, um, more adventurous, not, you know, all those old fears. It's time for them all to go. So, you know, I'd love to be working on Younger the Musical, and I'd love to have this new novel sold and, you know, schedule on the schedule with my publisher. And I own a business uh, named Barry, you know, which is a big part of how I spend my time. And we have a new project for that that I'm really excited about launching in the new year. So I think that probably takes me through the next, maybe till the end of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, tell us a little bit about Pat Nameberry because we didn't mention it, but it's the world's largest baby naming website, isn't it? Yes, I was a little, as a little kid, I was a little name nerd. And uh, <laughs> I had these notebooks and these special pens and I would, create these families and name them. And my fam- my family thought I was insane. 
you know, before the internet, if you had a weird interest, you, how were you ever going to know? Like, I guess I'm the only one in the world. <laughs> so it's very gratifying because, I mean, Nameberry is based on 10 books about names I co-wrote with Linda Rosencrantz, but it, it, one element of the site is a big forum where, you know, name lovers meet and talk to each other. Very gratifying for me to think of these people who have this passion, you know, teenagers finding each other and, and really just talking about what do you like better, Rosie or Romy? I mean, those are big questions to a name nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you go about naming your characters in your books then? Oh, yeah. yeah. Is it a painful process? <laughs> I feel like I'm like Shoemaker's daughter or something. Yeah. I feel like I have to really get better at this. But someone to me recently said, you know, you're not really naming your characters. You're really deciding what their parents would have named them. So, you know, like like soap operas on TV, the characters always have names that are completely anachronistic. They're kind of like currently fashionable baby names that nobody, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, Kennedy and Kylo, like nobody had those names 30 years ago. So I'm fascinated by Skylar. That <laughs> seems to have popped up from somewhere and I don't know how, but it's everywhere. Skylar with an A at the end? Not L-A-R, Sky L-A-R. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, there are all variations of that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Tell, tell me, there's just one other question that I really like to ask everyone I talk to. At this stage of your career, if you were doing it all over again, mm. Is there anything you would change? And if so, what would that be? Well, I would definitely start writing novels a lot earlier because that was my true ambition all along. And I feel like I didn't honor it. It's like that was the thing I wanted and kind of assumed that I couldn't get, you know. And so I, I went after all these other things down here as sort of, you know, oh, well, I can get this, I can get that. And now I wish I had gone after the thing I really wanted and been less afraid. You know, yes, it was hard to get that thing and maybe I wouldn't have gotten it. But a lot of the reason I didn't go after it is that I was afraid. That's wonderful. And so it's a takeaway for people listening to not let your fears get in the way of the thing you really want to do. It's very, it's very hard. You know, it really is. Mm -hmm. But from this point of view, I realized that a lot of the fears you know, were, were kind of meaningless and that I should have worked on rather than letting the fear stop me or using it to justify my own non-performance. I should have worked on dealing with the fears. You know, I don't know. I, I, mm. I went to therapy that didn't help. <laughs> maybe, I mean, it helped, but it didn't make me not afraid. And maybe I just needed to get older. You know, there is something about yeah. getting older where you're just you just realize that, yes, it's scary, but, you know, it's not going to bite you. Yeah, you're not going to die of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Look, that's wonderful, Pamela. So where can your, your readers find you online? Well, they can go to PamelaRedmond.com. That's R-E-D-M-O-N-D. And that includes links to the books and information about everything I do. So... Are you active on social media? I mean, do you have a yeah. Facebook page or? Thank you for asking and reminding me. Yes, I'm on Instagram at the Pamela Redmond. Great. Do you like taking photographs? I do not like taking photographs. And I do not, actually, 
one of the editors from Nameberry who does Nameberry's Instagram has been helping me with my Instagram. And I told her at one point, I said, I have discovered that I hate in capital letters looking through old photographs and and looking at photographs myself. Hate. So it's painful <laughs> for me. <laughs> Look, that's, look, it's been wonderful talking. Um, I, I really am going to hopefully look out for this musical. <laughs> yes, I know. It's definitely needs a Wellington premiere. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And look, thank you so much for being willing to take part today and give us your time. Thanks so much. Jenny, thank you. I loved uh, meeting you and talking with you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.